This week on the Back Table Podcast. On the other hand, like oftentimes there's a reason that the blood pressure is really hard to control. And that's also like kind of dovetails with the reason you might be doing a renal biopsy. Right. And so I get it. I think there's probably some people are like, yeah, I do them under 170 and it's safe. And like, you know, they do these measures. I think that's totally reasonable also. Like, I mean, I think that like I'm not saying that an IR doc is unsafe to do a biopsy with like an uncontrolled blood pressure or uh, not to say uncontrolled blood pressure, but a blood pressure that's out of that range that we talked about, because sometimes that can be one of the exact reasons that you're doing the biopsy in the first place. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Back Table Podcast. If you're a new listener, welcome. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or our website, which is backtable.com. Very easy to remember. Subscribe to the show, leave us a review, or reach out to us on social media. For all of our regular listeners, welcome back and thank you for listening. Now a quick word from our sponsor. Taking out med school loans had me watching every penny. I took two buses to get to campus. During my residency, I walked 20 blocks. But since I opened a Laurel Road Link checking account when I refinanced my loans, I got a crazy low rate plus a cash bonus. And all that extra money helped me finally buy my own car. Where are we going? Anywhere we want. Laurel Road for doctors. Banking insights and benefits uniquely designed for doctors. See laurelroad.com slash doctor checking for full terms and conditions. Laurel Road is a brand of KeyBank NA member FDIC. RadPad was developed by physicians for physicians. Clinically proven radiation protection during Cine and digital subtraction and geography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RadPad radiation protection shields for all your fluoro-guided interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. And don't forget to tell them that you heard about it on the Backtable podcast. Now, back to the episode. Hey, everyone. It's Aaron Fritz and Chris Beck back for another Back to the Basics episode. Today, we are going to cover renal biopsies. And, you know, hate is a strong word, but I strongly dislike renal biopsies. I would say it's one of my ultimate least favorite, maybe behind the thyroid biopsy or thyroid FNA rather, uh, you know, procedure, just because. I think early on in my career uh, out in practice, I had a couple of bleeds that just, it, they just stick with me. And, but that also has probably helped me, you know, along the way with, with not having subsequent bleeds, but it's still just something about, you know, that kidney, uh, prinkable tissue just so prone to bleed that it just always makes me nervous. Uh, but I know some people are way more kind of lax about it. They're lax about the blood pressure. They're lax about, you know, how many samples they get. But uh, we wanted to do this episode because we know everybody's got little tips and tricks for every little procedure, and uh, Chris Beck's a, the, the perfect person to bring on for that. Welcome, Chris. Aaron, thank you for having me. I wouldn't say that I'm the perfect person to have on. I'm kind of agnostic about renal biopsies, or at least try to be, or like all IR procedures. Like when I find myself like saying like I don't like a different procedure, I just try and say like it's all just work. At the end of the day, you're trying to get out before five and hopefully not get called in afterwards. But actually, I can't help but dislike renal biopsies just a little bit. And, and it's the same reason. It's a negativity factor in that I just feel like it's always one of those cases that you can be plugging along in your day, have like a 10 a.m. renal biopsy that then turns into like a 3 p.m. or 2 p.m. embolization. So 
yeah, it, it's a thing. And um, hopefully we can uncover some things here that make it a little bit safer for people. I, I think that's it too. It, it can really throw a wrench in the gears of your day more so than even like a pneumothorax. Because the pneumothorax, you're like, okay, I'll yes. throw a chest tube in. They'll be fine. Right. We'll admit mm-hmm. them overnight, whatever. This, it's like they're, if you have an immediate bleed, and we'll talk about bleeding a little bit later, but like if you can, if you have an immediate bleed, you're like, okay, do I take them now or do I wait and watch? It's, it's sort of this like in mm-hmm. limbo. Do I wait and watch or do I take them now? Do I wait till later? And it's, and, you know, and they're hurting and then that, that yes. pain is causing more hypertension and it's just, it's, you know, you got to move on to the next case. And it's like, somebody's got to be on top of this patient. And a lot of times there's nobody to kind of quarterback it, especially when it happens early on in the day. So, but let's jump into first off indications and then contraindications. When, when are you typically mostly getting these uh, patients sent to you? So uh, primary referral base is nephrology. We get a majority of them as outpatients, probably 85% as outpatients, handful as inpatients. And the main indication that I see is proteinuria. That's that's actually another reason I'm not a huge fan of uh, renal biopsies. I know that some people are like super interventional radiologists. And so they know all the indications and they can suss out like when something kind of doesn't feel right. But for me, I really take a lot of I'll take the lead of the nephrologist. If the nephrologist says that they need a renal biopsy, this isn't one that I push back on um, and say, you know, is the indication really there? Like, do you really need it for this proteinuria? I mean, I'll certainly talk with my nephrologist about like risk stratification and then if a patient's at risk. But as far as the indications go, I see proteinuria all the time. I see renal insufficiency all the time. And those are the two main indications that I see. Yeah, I actually, when uh, in the practice that I'm working out of, it's they're mostly inpatients coming across our plate nowadays. Um, I think a lot of it was like uh, maybe it had to do with COVID, people having this like sort of random acute renal failure uh, related to COVID. And then, uh, you know, proteinuria is definitely mostly outpatient, obviously. Mm-hmm. But then you, and, and probably like, you know, lupus nephritis uh, outpatient. But yeah, the acute unexplained kidney failure, we're seeing a lot of that in the hospital. And that's a lot of times when they have some, confounding, you know, issue or the, or comorbidity and they're on, you know, blood thinners for arrhythmia or, uh, they're on, they've been on aspirin or Plavix cause they have heart disease. And so that's when I, you know, I definitely pick up the phone and I have a conversation with the nephrologist about, okay, how soon do you need this? You know, can we stop these blood thinners? Uh, because we're going to need to, to do this. And so the, like you said, the risk stratification is part of the pushback. Oftentimes, I'm not questioning the indication. It's more just, you know, hey, this person has a very small sliver of renal cortex. Like, do you really need this tissue biopsy? Because chances are they're going to bleed. So, um, yeah, so I, I feel the same way. What about contraindications? So, contraindications for me is uh, uncontrolled coagulopathy, uh, uncontrolled hypertension. If they have some kind of ongoing infection or they're, they're in-house and they're actually obstructed, those are the, the contraindications. And the one that actually tends to come up mostly is the uncontrolled high blood pressure. And we'll get into that later about some things that you can do on the table. Um, but uncontrol- uncontrolled blood pressure. And then patients who are just too unstable to have the renal biopsy. I've had a couple of patients who could not lay prone or be in a decubitus position. And we can also talk about that later because there are some ways to troubleshoot that. But those are the two main things, like patients who are just too unstable to have a renal biopsy, 
either because they can't tolerate the positioning or I'm worried that they just don't have enough reserve. If they had a bleed, it could be life. I mean, it's always life threatening as a bleed, but I'm worried I can't get them to cath lab in time. And then uh, patients with hypertension who we can't get uh, relatively well controlled day of procedure. Got it. So you're looking at the, and that that's more for an inpatient, like uh, the stability of the patient. If they're pretty sick, then you're kind of looking at that risk. You're stratifying that risk. Uh, what about coags? What are your What are you looking at for parameters on coags? So, you know, I have to tip my hat to SIR. I always just pull up the app these days, and I, I haven't pulled it up for this procedure, but uh, INR less than one point five and platelets above fifty. Interesting. Okay. I'm going to so look it up. I, I also, it up right now. Let me see. Well, I, I did before we jumped on because uh, okay. um, I, I agree the app is very useful and I suggest anybody who's listening to download that app today. It's the, uh, what's it called? The SIR anticoagulation regimen or? SIR guidelines. SIR guidelines. Yeah. Uh, it's fantastic. It basically can help guide you on any, uh, what, any blood thinner, any procedure that we commonly mm-hmm. do for IR. Uh, and so it's, I think it was INR less than 1.8. Yeah, um, you're right. Less than 1.8. Platelets greater than 50,000. You know, and then there's certain things like if they're on warfarin, you want to hold for five days. If they're on Plavix, you want to hold for five days. Aspirin, I think was three to five days. If they're in the hospital and this is something that's part of their workup to get them out of the hospital, we're usually, well, first we'll say, hey, this can be done as an outpatient. Uh, and secondly, we'll say, well, if, absolutely has to be done while inpatient that we're going to hold, we can hold for aspirin for three days, but typically for outpatients, it's five days for aspirin. Um, but yeah, anything else, there's a long list of blood thinners on that app that you can check and and just make sure that you're holding for a sufficient amount of time. And then, and then they have the article, you know, they have the, the, the papers or the articles that you can actually send to your nephrologist to say, Hey, look, this is in the literature basically. I will out. say with I will say with renal biopsies, at least the one that I have checked off here, it's biopsy solid organ or deep non-organ. Is that? Yeah, it no. says it'll say renal under that. Yeah, okay. solid organ. It, it. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like included in that. For me, like renal biopsies are different than native liver biopsies. I, I, in actually just like looking at the app just now, I'd probably stick to one point five. Almost always, I'm less conservative than the app, but. These renal biopsies, I play it pretty close to the vest. That's probably smart. I mean, one point five is pretty conservative. I, I I tend to go by the one point eight, or even will go up to one point nine if it's somebody they're really pushing for. But yeah, that's that's good to know. So, are you doing yours CT or ultrasound guided, or both, depending on the situation? Almost always CT guided. Um, yeah. When I first got to the practice, like CT was kind of the decided upon workflow. We used to do them both ways in fellowship. And I, I like doing, so my overall preference as, as an operator, just in general, if I can see it with ultrasound, I want to stick it with ultrasound. With this, it just is a little bit easier because all the providers are comfortable with CT. And we have a couple IR docs that they could definitely do it under ultrasound, but their their skill set is more within CT. And so I just kind of stick with the party line and stay in CT. And there's plenty of renal biopsies that I'm glad were booked with CT. I mean, for me, CT, like whether you got a 15 centimeter throw or a five centimeter throw, it's kind of all the same. Like yeah. it's just it's just easy. With ultrasound, you know, if you have a thin to moderately sized patient, I think that ultrasound 
totally is workable. It can be helpful like if you don't want to lay your patient down. Like there's some people who do these with the patient sitting up. And but if you have that patient who's like got some small like kind of echogenic kidneys and you got a long throw to boot, that can be a tough that can turn it into a tough procedure, at least for me. Yeah, I I, I would say I'm probably 80, 90 percent CT. And a lot of that is just the practice pattern of the the group of the group. That being said, there's some, you know, in pretty much every CT department that I've worked at is comfortable with doing a renal biopsy. Sometimes I'm in an IR department where you know, a renal biopsy comes across and they're like, what, what are you talking about CT? No, we do these here with ultrasound. And it's it's more of a, a sedation thing, like the, the IR nurses that are covering sedation want to do it in the IR department because that's where they, it's not like you're going to the ultrasound department, you can actually do it in the IR department. And as long as they're thin and you can see the kidneys pretty well, and of course I'll look up any imaging they've had, usually they've had a CT. And it, as long as the, the body size is amenable to ultrasound, then I'll go ahead and book an ultrasound. But I'll fight if they're big and I and I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm doing this in CT. It's just gonna be a bit easier for everybody. You know, I'll be able to see the kidney. I'm totally with you on that. I mean, you gotta find the the area that you're comfortable in. We actually have a nephrologist who pushes back on us a lot. He is he's not like extremely happy that we do them in CT. I think he had trained at a place where like he did renal biopsies and they did everything under ultrasound. Yeah. And so he's, he's, um, oftentimes like, he's like, oh, you should got these, these would be safer. You did them in an ultrasound. And maybe from him, his, his perspective, that would be true. But from our perspective, frankly, I don't, I don't give a shit what he thinks, like in terms of like picking <laughs> my modality. So we do, we are, do ours in CT. And I know that we could definitely like actually have, like, I know, I, I would know ahead of time the BMI of all my patients and, like whether they were a good body habitus to have over in ultrasound, but you know, I I don't care. I mean, it's it's not that hard in either location, and so you know, for a fifty fifty jump ball that I can do an easy case in CT or an easy case in ultrasound, like it doesn't really matter to me. Well, safer is all in the hands of the proceduralists. Yes, you know, if of they're course. whatever they're comfortable with. So you know, yes, in the literature or theoretically, safer might be. You know, or that at that institution, safer was in ultrasound because that's where they did most of their cases. But the, you know, wherever the higher volume is, that tends to be safer because that's where the comfort zone is. You know, and I, I got into that with uh, a doc who I think that had trained maybe at MD Anderson. It was it was a hospitalist, and they ordered a liver biopsy and they ordered ultrasound guided, and we we changed it. We changed it to CT because at again at wherever I was doing cases that day at that location, they didn't do biopsies in ultrasound, liver biopsy ultrasound, they did them in CT. So I was like, all right, let's do it in CT. Well, we changed the order and then he goes in, cancels our order and then changes it back to ultrasound. And uh, and they were like, can you call this doc up? And then we're like, okay. So I call him up and it was a, you know, new to the hospital system. And I was like, hey, what's going on with the, why'd you cancel our order and change it? He's like, oh, you can't do it under CT. I was like, yeah, we, we do them under both modalities. You know, you can do it either both. He was like, oh, okay. Well, where I trained, they only did it under ultrasound. I was like, welcome to private practice, man. I mean, it's like, <laughs> it, <laughs> you know, you got to be flexible. It's not black or white. It's whatever, you know, is available. And that's what, and so I was like, trust me, we do enough of these that the, this is going to be safe. We're going to get it done. We're going to get it done right. But just to let you know, at this hospital, we do most of these biopsies under CT. And he's like, okay, cool. Thanks. 
But yeah, it's just interesting how, you know, people can be so, you know, narrow. Myopic. Yeah. Yeah. Just based off of training, you know. Well, one, it is weird that y'all do liver biopsies under CT. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I know a lot of people (laughs) that do. Um, But... Well, the reason yes, for that, the reason for that is, is, is alter the ultrasound departments, not right, set up is for away sedation. From the yeah. Yeah. It's not set up for sedation. So they're like, we're just going to do everything and see everything that's okay. biopsy basically in right. CT. Unless it's like a thyroid or something, you know what I mean? No, no, I, I totally get that. And, yeah. But it, it goes to like one of the larger points about like how like your IR department is set up and, and we could do a whole podcast on this, but like I have one location where I'm set up where everyone puts in an IR, like all referring docs put in an IR consult. Now they can type in as much history as a little history, or they can just type in thoracentesis or, or whatever. So they can make any suggestion that they want. But in the end, they put in the consult, we see the patient, and then we pick the right procedure. A lot of times the procedure that they're thinking and what we're thinking is in line. But, you know, it's not a situation where they put in ultrasound guided liver biopsy, and then we have to change it to CT liver guided biopsy. But then I also work at another place where they it's exactly like you described, where pay, uh, referring docs have to pick the exact procedure. And sometimes they get like, you know, because they're putting in an order and it is an order at this hospital of something. Now, we have the ability to change it and we still see the patients and, and try and work it up the right way. But it's just a slight paradigm shift be- between referring docs putting in an order and referring docs putting in a consult. And to me, like, it's just the the way it should be. It's just put in the consult, right. and then I'll and then I'll we'll work everything out. out exactly. Yeah. But yeah, you know, I, I'm I'm also sympathetic to people who who don't have that set up quite yet. Be just inertia, but it'll it'll happen. Yeah. It's getting there. Yeah, and real quick before we move on, I do want to talk about the advantages of. So we talked about the advantages of CT is basically size, body size, sure. and yep. being able to lay prone. Uh, you know, well, if they can lay prone, but. You know, and visibility, right? When mm-hmm. there's a larger size, the the advantage of ultrasound is that real time guidance, right? You can watch your needle go right into the renal cortex, make sure your tip is not like you know sticking into the mm-hmm. uh, in, in into the renal pelvis and staying away from the vasculature. And also, after you take your sample, you can watch and real. What oftentimes I'll do is under ultrasound is once I take my sample, I take that needle out. And this, you know, the stylet stays in, and then I keep my probe there, watching that kidney, and also holding some pressure while I hand over the needle to my tech, who gets the sample out and then gives me the needle back. Because a, I want to watch for bleeding, and b, I want to hold pressure on the kidney to help, you know, kind of try and prevent bleeding. So that, to me, is the advantage of ultrasound uh, in a skinny patient. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think all those things are are true. I'll add with CT, um, not that I think it tends to be a problem with these, but you can kind of know about the structures that are around you. Like one yeah. of the things that I feel like on skinny patients, like where there's just, there's no intermesenteric fat is like one of the biggest things that I worry about is like a through and through puncture where like, it's just like intestines or colon, it's just hugging the anterior right. part of that kidney. And I feel like I have a nice visualization under CT, but yes, I, I think both both get you there. And, and, you know, the live guidance of ultrasound is fantastic. I mean, kidneys are certainly a dynamic organ that's going to move with respiration. So yeah, I'm with you on that. Yeah. And ultrasound machines are getting better and better. Resolution is getting better. You know, you're able to see deeper structures better. So hopefully, you know, hey, maybe someday we won't have to do it under CT at all. It'll be all ultrasound gutted. They are. Um, You're totally right. Newer machines are just getting so good. Yeah. So are you typically going right versus left um, or is it just Matt, you just take a look first and decide on the fly? 
decide on the fly and it this is this like is a strange thing to say but sometimes it's just like but a lot of the ct rooms that we use there's like a bigger side of the room and so oftentimes i just put the grid on the bigger side of the room like it doesn't matter which side that is for the patient like however they decide to put the patient in the gantry but i'll just prefer to work from the big side of the room because i have more space yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, if I have to reach out, if I decide that that kidney is not a great one to biopsy and I have to reach over and do the other one, it's not a big deal. But it like basically I don't care which side, like usually both kidneys are, are good enough targets to where like, I don't scan them and then say, OK, let's go for the right one. Usually I have I mean, that, that's my experience that whichever kidney is going to give me some good tissue. Yeah, definitely with ultrasound, I will look at both kidneys, see what's more visible, what's more sure. uh, accessible. I, for CT, I tend to go on the left. Um, usually, like you said, that's the bigger side of the room for our CT rooms, um, where they're they're going to be in feet first in the CT gantry, is it will have more room on the left. And but also, I feel like there's it's a little bit more maybe because the the liver's not on that side, the kidney tends to have a little bit more exposure. There's like a bigger window posteriorly um, coming down through. And the other thing I like to do is is not if I can help it not have to go through the paraspinal muscle, yeah, gotcha. um, because in case like they have some, you know, with that needle puncture they can they can have a contraction and that can kind of change mm-hmm. things, and they can feel it right going through that muscle can hurt, and so I try to stay outside the muscle if possible, but I also like to come straight down on the cortex. So yeah, typically I would say I'm probably 75% left, but sometimes the right is more favorable. So I just didn't know if you had a method to to it. I mean, there's a kind of a method to the madness, but I can't make a strong, like I, yeah. like I can't even think about whether I'm doing left or right more often. I just kind of yeah. pick whatever side. And, and oftentimes like you also just kind of look and I'm like, all right, the, this is the side we should do for whatever yeah. reason, whether it's something else is in the way, there's nearby colon. This kidney happens to just look slightly plumper at the lower pole. Sometimes that's a factor. And I'm also, I think that's also like kind of a savvy tip for younger um, interventionalists or trainees, like avoiding that paraspinal musculature. Just for what you said, two reasons, pain. And sometimes like if they clench that side, that can kind of redirect your needle in a, in a way that you don't want it to. And then also there's just less play in the needle once you start like getting into muscle. Like if you try and do a redirect and you're in muscle, yeah. like it's just a little bit harder to, to torque it. Yeah. So speaking of the redirect, so let's talk about sedation. Are, are you doing moderate sedation typically? Yes, like all the time, sedation? moderate. Yeah, yeah moderate yeah. sedation with fentanyl and Versed. Um, I know some people do it under local. That's fine too. Um, I mean, certainly for sick patients, I would yeah. do it. I mean, you know, like I just, I, I get the area deadened and then I have a 22 gauge needle, drive it to the, the cortex. I'll deaden them up like right over the cortex and then do a biopsy. I mean, I, I don't think it's that bad, um, especially with like, enough lidocaine but if someone can tolerate the anesthesia oftentimes i'm going to get the anesthesia and when we get into the blood pressure discussion yeah. sometimes i want that drop in blood pressure so totally. anesthesia works in my favor in that way yeah so yeah typically moderate sedation i can't remember ever doing it under general and i can't ever remember doing it without sedation because yeah typically these Let's talk a little bit about. Oh, first, before we talk about blood pressure, I want to talk about the redirect because when I, you know, I'm doing moderate sedation, a lot of times I like to do the timeout and start on sedation before we even do the initial scan. Because what will happen is you do the timeout, you'll scan them, and then they're taking their time, get them sedation, they get them sedation, and then by the time you 
prep them, get that needle in. It's like, whoa, where, why am I all the way upper pole now? Right? Because there's sure. because their breathing changed drastically, yeah, or yeah, yeah. or you're way out, you're way below because yeah, yeah, yeah. they started sedation and now their breathing's either either really shallow or maybe deeper. It's altered, right? It's different. So I like to have them sedate before we even scan so that you have that same sedated breathing throughout the whole procedure. That's a pretty good thought. Um, sometimes, I, sometimes I'll just like, you know, like I don't go right in with the needle. I'll, you know, <laughs> for some reason, a lot has happened in between timeout sedation and then me getting that first needle in, you know, I just take the needle out and put it up higher. Well, I know sometimes, point- I know sometimes it's like, oh, well now that's not like a great spot because there's something in the way, but yeah. It's yeah. All, and then, like, and then you all just this gotta- is, yeah, all this is kind of like case to case. Well, and it's always ends up to me at least the procedure is all kind of cake anyway. I mean, right. knock on wood. <laughs> <laughs> when we get this call about like, I never say I that mean, like, on a Reno. I, I know. I mean, the, well, the procedure is easy, but like, I mean, I. Well, we'll, we'll talk about it later. Okay. Yeah, I'm not going to say anything because I'll drink every future renal biopsy. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> so. On on the subject of sedation, okay, the mm-hmm. other thing is, uh, you just mentioned the blood pressure, so let's talk about that. That's the other reason why I'd start sedation right at the very beginning, because yep. I want to get an idea of where we're starting with the blood pressure. So they get them, they get everything, they get them all hooked up, right? They get them hooked up, and they're, they're on the table, they're prone, and already their blood pressure's up because they're nervous. Right. And so I just say, time out, let, okay, what's our, what's our starting blood pressure? Typically, it's like 180 over... 95 or, you know I mean? Somewhere in that range of 160 to 200 sometimes. And so it's like, okay, let's get them. Let's start 150 or two. If they're a big person, I'll start 250 even. And then, you know, recheck their blood pressure and then we'll scan them as soon as, because I don't want to like, if I don't see any drop in blood pressure, then, then I start with the, and, and they even look a little bit sleepy. Then I, then I'm like, okay, let's start with the hydro. Let's start with a dose of hydralazine. Let's see where that takes them. And if after like a couple, if after sedation and a couple doses of hydralazine, they're not under 160 or even under 155, then I'm like, let's call the nephrologist, send them back up. They got to get their blood pressure under control, and we'll try again tomorrow. Because to me, that's where you get the bleeds is the is that uncontrolled blood pressure even. After sedation and multiple um, attempts at control with hydralazine and/or labetalol, but tell me what tell me what your process is with, with uh, blood pressure. So, kind of like you mentioned, I always want to know about the the blood pressure. Even like what's their baseline when they come in, when they're just kind of like when we first get them in the uh, pre-op area. So I want to know what a baseline blood pressure is, and so I have an idea whether or not. We're going to need to do blood pressure control. Sometimes I'll give clonidine pre-op, you know, 0.1, 0.2, or 0.3, depending on the blood pressure. And when they're in the procedure, like you said, get them prone. And sometimes for for whatever reason, um, well, for a couple of reasons, uh, the blood pressure oftentimes goes up, you know, five or 10 points, like when they're prone. And then when we're doing the timeout, get them sedated. You'll get like a, a, a drop in blood pressure then. And then this is kind of like your new area to work. So my target is under 140. That's what I'm looking to go for. I will biopsy, depending on the situation, between 140 and 150, but I really, really like to get it below 140. For the longest time, I was doing under 150, and then at some point, I did a lit review, and I found that like one, like um, a systolic below 140, diastolic's below 90 is kind of what the target is. 
But because like for so long I was doing them in between 140 and 150, I'm more likely to flex on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I will not biopsy if it's above 150 yeah. or at least without like a strong conversation with like nephrology and whatever, like in a lot of scenarios that would be an inpatient about like how necessary this was. But yeah, after I know that their blood pressure is, I know my target and then I'm giving uh, doses of hydralazine and lobetalol, sometimes in, in tandem, like, you know, 10 and 20 or 10 and 10, 20 and 20, depending on how high their blood pressure is. And as soon as I get below, then oftentimes if I, I know of him within striking distance, I'm getting that needle position to take the sample. But if if it's like, you know, we're starting out at 220 or something like that, and I'm still trying to get it down, I'm probably not even going to start the case until I've gotten a, like the blood pressure within like very close range of what I think our target is. But this is this is like one thing where I think most people will differ is what their target is and then how likely they are to flex on it and like how like how much are you really helping if you bring them down from 220 to 130 you get your biopsy and then like 30 minutes later they're they're tacking along at 220 again right like i don't like i I think you want to be able to i I think the safer move uh the more and more like i look at our patients like we've had bad, bad outcomes it's when the blood pressure is like through the roof and like we control it for the the procedure and then in post they go back up go to right like up. One, they go right back up and so i think it's like so, so there's a uh, the referrals or the the big center in new orleans uh Oshner, like i talked with some of their docs very smart docs and they kind of feel strongly about having a sustained control blood pressure below i forgot if they do below 150 or 140 like if they have an inpatient and you know they're not below their target by uh their target uh systolic they don't even like bring them down to the department they're like you guys have to control the blood pressure for 24 hours then we'll bring them down which i think is is probably the smarter move i don't i don't know how you manage that as well for uh outpatients other than that you just have the referring docs bring them in for blood pressure checks or you bring them in and you notice it's high and then bounce them back that seems a little onerous and onerous on the patient and it seems onerous on everybody. But yeah. um, I think like having this like a well-controlled blood pressure is the key to like a nice safe biopsy. Yeah, for sure. And and um, I'm the same as you. Like when when I bring it down with that initial sedation, what I'm, what I'm looking to see is just a drop, right? Because if they're not sure. dropping with what you're giving them, right, right. then it's like, okay, send them up. They got work to do upstairs, right? On this blood pressure. But if you see a drop and your drop is trending down and so you're at like, you know, you say you give them two and 50, you know, two milligrams of Versed, 50 of fentanyl, and then you gave them maybe even 10 of hydrazine and you're down in that 150-ish area. It's like, okay, let's go ahead and scan. Let's go ahead and mark our spot. Let's sure. go ahead and start getting set up. In the meantime, we'll keep trending the blood pressure. And if it shoots right back up again, then it's like, okay, that's a red flag um, before I've even stuck, right? If it's stabilized and it's like, okay, let's try another round of hydralazine or let's try, uh, you know, if they're still kind of awake, let's try another round of sedation. And then, like you said, I really like, my number's 145. Let's get, and I, I tell every nurse that at the very beginning, let's get them down below 145 systolic. And as long as we're seeing that consistently, then it's like, okay, then I'm trying, I don't work like rushed, but I'm working at a, a pace that, like, you know, especially if their blood pressure start out really high, 
where I'm like, I want to get this done fast so that we can, you know, if their blood pressure does shoot back up, like we can control it, right? It's not, we're not yeah. like lollygagging or anything like that. So anyway, what, uh, what I think we did well, a number will, on the blood I will pressure. say that like, yeah, we did do a number, it, but it's an important point. I, I think it's actually yeah, one of the cornerstones like, of a nice, safe yeah, procedure. Totally. But on the other hand, like oftentimes there's a reason that the blood pressure is really hard to control. And that's also like kind of dovetails with the reason you might be doing a renal biopsy. Right. And so- I get it. I think there's probably some people are like, yeah, I do them under 170 and it's safe. And like, you know, they do these measures. I think that's totally reasonable also. Like, I mean, I think that, like, I'm not saying that an IR doc is unsafe to do a biopsy with like an uncontrolled blood pressure or uh, not to say uncontrolled blood pressure, but a blood pressure that's out of that range that we talked about. Because sometimes that can be one of the exact reasons that you're doing the biopsy in the first place. I think it's, I think it's good to make every good faith effort to like lower that blood pressure and try and do it safely but sometimes you also worry about drop like tanking their blood pressure yeah and so like you know it's a balancing act like you don't want to tank someone's blood pressure with all the anesthesia uh that you're giving them and all the antihypertensives but on the other end you're like ah, if i have like a slightly higher blood pressure like in the end i know i can even if like i have a complication from the procedure it's like on the back end i know i can control that too even though it, it may be it may be you know an angio and an embolization but you do have that in your back pocket. That that's still a minimally invasive procedure to go in and you know take out a very small piece of kidney and then try and use a minimal amount of contrast. So I just don't want to come down like too much of a hard liner on this this blood pressure thing because I think like every patient requires like either like some individual consideration, right? True. But I would my suggestion to our audience is that it's going to make your life a lot easier. <laughs> And your workday less problematic mm. if you do have a hard if you do draw a hard line. I th I think that it's okay. I think it's okay to and it sounds like you do have a hard line. It, and you're right, it is a case by case. And sometimes you know you just have to. It's the best thing is just pick up the phone, have that conversation with the nephrologist. Hey man, can you guys do like a carzin drip here, something to just keep it stable, so it's not like when we get done they shoot up to 200 and then we're bringing them back you know, for an embolization three hours later. Like they, they, sometimes the nephrologist just needs to be aware of what you're seeing because they haven't been on the ward. They haven't rounded yet. They haven't, see, they just got the patient. You know, there's a lot of factors sure. at hand with like just patient care and communication. And so I think that's key as well is just communicating with the team. So it's not like a hot, you know, juggling a hot potato here. Like, yeah. Hey, I, you know, here, like I did this procedure, but they're, they're kind of tenuous. I'm not sure if they're going to bleed or not, but here you go. Get their blood pressure under control. It's just, I think it's as soon as you recognize it, it's uncontrolled to just give them a call and be like, hey, I'm not real comfortable with this. What can we do? And if they're like, no, like we've been working on it. We like, we really need this biopsy. You know, can you help us? Let's figure something out. And just putting those, the brains together, kind of figured out. I think that that's key. Yeah. It's also funny how like we're clearly looking at it through different lenses. Like you're, you're yeah. describing like the inpatient thing, which I think is so easy because like Don't. you just call the nephrologist, you can call the referring doc. And then like, you know, everyone's got like a nice tight or everyone's got good access to the patient. But, you know, like actually what I'm thinking about is like, you know, you get sent a, it's like the outpatients. Those are the ones that really have yeah, me yeah. worried. Yeah. 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 Um, I agree. Okay. I agree. Yeah. 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 Because let's say that. <laughs> You do the procedure and their blood pressure's high in post-op and like you can't get their doc on the phone. What are you going to do? 
I'll still treat the I'll still try and treat the blood pressure in like you know you can restart home meds you can still go back to the hydralazine and labetalol and yeah so sometimes I will treat like really high blood pressure in post but and then know, once so, you I get mean, it under control you just say hey stick your home meds and you send them home so yeah so getting into the post care so yeah I, I keep mine three or four hours usually three hours and then yeah definitely restart home meds and then hopefully like when we send them home like we try and like shoot for a systolic under one eighty. Okay. Yeah. Um, let's, yeah. So let's not, fa- I, sorry, I don't mean to fast forward to post-care, but I, I was just mind. curious to know about sure, sure. The, the the blood pressure stuff. So, so real quick, so we got the blood pressure under control. We got our, okay. our imaging. We know where we're going to go. Let's say it's left lower pole and we got everything lined up. What needle type do you use? 18 gauge biopens. Biopens. Okay. And that's, um, that's argon biopens, right? Argon biopens. It's yep. like the one that's like the hand trigger. It's so they have a new one out. This now sounds like Argon needs to sponsor this podcast, but um, well, they no, have no, because no, I'm going to talk about my needle here. In a second, so. <laughs> yeah, the, so they have yeah. they have a new one where it the you haven't used the biopens. I guess I I just you you know I use I've it all used the time, I've so. used it I've used the old one though where it's like it's the yeah it's got that it. handle yeah it's yeah, got yeah. that handle that locks it and then there's two there's two triggers there's one on the back and there's one on the side right, right. Mm-hmm. and then with the new needle they took the the safety off maybe there actually i think there is a safety on it but it's i can't now i can't really remember the old one but basically the safety is like off like when you first get it and so like you know you know i at least with me i never used the safety and so it was always an annoyance that the safety was there and turned on but yeah so use the biopens and nice spring-loaded biopsy device i feel like i get good cores from it i like it uh but you know like i've, I've been at hospitals where they don't have the biopens and you know if they have uh, a side cutting needle, then I'll use an 18-gauge side-cutting needle also. Not a problem. Well, you know what's interesting? So I've always used the, as long as I can remember, I mean, the Bard, the Bard Mission needle, which I'm a big fan of because it's very sharp. It takes good samples. But before, there, before that, it was always Temno, the Temno needle that was available. And of all, it's it, this is like interesting to me. Uh, and this is not sponsored by Argon. But or like, Bard. Or Bard, yeah. And, you know, we, we use these needles and we're located in North Dallas, like Plano, Frisco and all. And, you know, we cover like the group covers like 15 hospitals and every hospital pretty much has one of those, you know, m- most of the group has switched over to the Bard mission. Maybe some places you'll see a Temno here and there. I have not seen the biopins at any of those hospitals. Okay. And the, this, here's the other odd thing is Argon is based out of Frisco, which is literally right down the street. Right. So right. I, I'm always just like, what? Because I know some of those guys, and I'm like, what? You know, why do I not see y'all's needles anywhere? It's it's and and yet in New Orleans, it that's all you see, right? Yeah, I mean, we definitely have options. I mean, it's not always the like I I usually have another 17 introducer, 18 gauge biopsy needle that's an option, but I just kind of yeah. grab it. But yeah, I mean, whatever Argon's doing here for marketing, I guess it's working. But also well, maybe that's also Philly a factor too. of me. Yeah, maybe that's also a factor of me. Maybe I've always just asked for them, like, give me the biopens, and maybe they're thinking, oh, we got to get some biopens from Dr. Beck. I, well, I mean, I remember in residency that they had the biopens, and mm-hmm. when I, the first time I saw, like, a Temno or a Mission, I was like, what is this thing? Like, it looks so <laughs> dainty, right? Yeah. And because the biopens is like a, it's, I mean, that's, that actually is my, to me, the downside now is like, there's yes. a weight to it, right? Mm-hmm. 
yeah, yeah. Uh, whereas I like the the weight the weightlessness or the lightness of the of the mission, especially it's very lightweight. So like if you're at an angle, it's not like it's weighing it down or like yeah, it's not pulling point. it one way or the other. Yeah, of course. Um, so anyway, well, we don't size. I mean, I guess depend. You know, length it always depends. We talked about eighteen gauge, but you know, you pick the length dependent on your track. Of course. How well, hold on, I think the I think the big question is like why why aren't we going sixteen, like sixteen gauge. I bleeding. I mean, it's kidney, so I would be worried about bleeding. So I think if you do a lit search on this, and and you know, I'm welcome to people's experience and also like what they found in the research. But I, I, all the papers that I've seen, there's not like a statistically significant difference between a 16 and 18 gauge sample with regards to complications, like same bleeding related complications. But you get better samples with the 16 gauge. Hmm. I will say. We like, you know, this is just the nature of IR kind of wax and wane in terms of like for we had a run of patients that we had non-diagnostic tissue on. And so I was like, well, what like I want to do everything we can do to make sure we get good tissue. And so I went to the 16 gauge needle, bought a box of them. And like it was like two for three or three for four. I forget exactly number two for three or three for four of like patients who had like I didn't have to inter. I had to intervene on like one of them, but like the the hematoma afterwards, I was like, "Oh my god, this is huge!" Or it it wasn't huge, but it was like, "Oh, this is this yeah. is big." Um, yeah. And then so you know that negativity bias, like it sunk into my brain, and I'll never forget like having like those three patients with bigger hematomas than I was used to seeing. One of which I had to take back to cath lab. So, so well, that, that's actually so I tried to move to a sixteen gauge, and I. I yeah, you know didn't get through a box. Like, I didn't get yeah. through a box of sixteen gauges <laughs> before I was back on the eighteen. And then actually, like we did some other things that also improved our yield. So I was yeah. like, I can, I, you know, I use eighteen for everything else. I'm not trying to like make it different for one procedure. I, I think there's like some nice, you know, just being consistent. Like the techs know what to pull, techs know what to order, and then you're not stuck with like thirty different needle sizes and lengths. Yeah, I mean, it kind of it reminds me of the whole thing with the lungs. I used to do 20 gauges for all lungs. And then uh, when the BARD mission came out, like, you know, the Temno just took horrible samples uh, with a with a 20 gauge, you know, Temno for a lung. And so you'd get inadequate sampling. And then I was talking to a, I was talking to somebody, it was somebody I think in my group and they were like, you know, I switched to 18 and I, he's like, I haven't noticed any increase in my number of pneumothoraces and I get much better samples and, you know, so therefore I think it's better patient care. So I started doing it and it, and he's right. I mean, you know, a pneumo is a pneumo. I think if they're emphysema, you know, if they have significant emphysema, you're going to get a pneumo. Like you just got to expect it. And um, sure. so I, I switched to 18s. I pretty much never do a 20 anymore because he he's totally right. Like you get good samples with an 18. With 20s, you get like little crap. You just mm -hmm. get crap and you, it's guesswork whether or not you, you got adequate samples. So it just reminded me of like my decision to change. But see, but see, a pneumo is a lot easier to me to handle sure. than, and For we sure. already talked about this, than a big bleed in the kidney. And so I, I think that I would shy away from switching to a 16 despite the sample thing. Yeah. It's just, I, I was just putting it out there because, I mean, through my practice, I already said I'm on record for doing 18, but. You know, if someone's using 16 or even 14, I don't fault them for that. I mean, there's some there's some people that are are definitely doing that, um, especially the 16 gauge. Yeah. So now, do you guys have a pathologist on site, like checking the glomeruli? And so when 
I kind of like did this deep dive into like how you can get better samples or not better sample, better yield from the samples that you're getting. One of the things you looked at is just having a pathologist come down, check your samples for glomeruli and then move along. Yeah. So for a little while I was doing that on all the patients, but still like every now and then we'd have one that came back non-diagnostic and then, but you know, like I would, I would document it. It was like the pathologist was there. He counted the glomeruli. I wouldn't document the number of glomeruli that he, he found because pathology was also very cagey about, I'd be like, how many gloms do you have? And he'd be like, oh, we got enough. And I was like, well, how many is enough for you? And he's and like, so for, and I guess we'd have to have a pathologist on the podcast, but he's like, look, honestly, I'm not looking at like, because we just started doing that. He's like, I haven't looked at glomeruli. He's like, in a long time. He's like, it was a situation where he described like, he's like, Google how to find glomeruli at a light microscope at 10X. Like, I got a feeling he Googled it right before he showed up. And so he's just like, he's like, oh, I think this is enough. <laughs> and I don't know what he's seeing. I don't look myself. Right. But when when they say adequate, I say adequate and I document that. But regardless, we still ended up with some samples that came back inadequate. And some of those were patient factors. Like we actually went on to re-biopsy and those came back diagno- non-diagnostic. And so it was, and the, and the patient ended up having like some kind of disease process where, I mean, I'm talking out of school. They just but- needed more basically to, to confirm that disease. Yeah, it was also case, right? it was also a disease that like burns up the glomeruli. So you think oh. you're seeing them, um, and then like what you're actually seeing is just like scar know, gar- Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so it was it was like as the pathologist is looking at it, it's not what you see like under um, you know the other microscope. So yeah, I do have pathology uh, come in the room, count the gloms. I'm if I but now like I know that if I have a patient where I really want to limit the number of samples, like because invariably, no matter how many samples I take, pathology asks for one more. Which is fine, which is fine. I mean, like, I want to get adequate tissue. But now, um, sometimes if I have a patient where I'm like, look, I only want to take two. I just don't feel like pushing the envelope on this. Then I just get two. I'm like, you got what you got. And hopefully we get a diagnosis. And most of the time we do. But like, sometimes it's just like, I don't want to take that third, fourth. And I never go above five samples. Are you imaging in between each just to make sure your needle's right in that cortex on CT? no, not in between each. Sometimes. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. If for some reason I think like there was any kind of play in the needle as I'm putting the the biopsy device in and out, then yeah, I'll, I'll take a look and make sure I didn't push in or push out. Um, but oftentimes, or, or like if I take a sample and then I get nothing back, right. like, oh, well, what's happened here? Um, so sometimes I'll image in between, but most of the time I don't in between image in between each sample. Okay. So yeah, let me tell you, I, so I do image in between because the reason is that, yeah, sometimes their breathing changes the, you know, like, like you said, the needle moves in or out. And I just like that confirmation, that visual confirmation that my needle is through that cortex. It didn't go too far and get into the, into the, the, you know, the renal pelvis or, you know, where there's a bunch of blood vessels. It's not like, you know, poking through and through none of that. So I, I just want visual confirmation and I usually max out at three and, um, the reason for that is typically that's all you that's all you need. Uh, sure. You know, ours are mailed out at most of the hospitals I cover, where you put them in those three tubes. Yep, ours is right. And but what I do, and this is kind of a trick for the audience in case this ever comes up, but because that barred eighteen gauge needle takes such good samples, what I'll do is I'll ask the nurse uh, when I when I'm first getting started to have my needle in place. 
I'll say, hey, put a wet telfa on my back tibble. Mm -hmm. And instead of putting that, when I get that first sample, instead of putting it straight into the first tube, I put it on the wet telfa. And and then for, and then I'll proceed with the, the second one. And the reason I do that is because I've been burned where I took that first sample and then I, I go to take my second sample, I take the stylet out and I got blood shooting out, right? And and it's I got an immediate bleed, right? I got an immediate bleed and, and I got to kind of take care of that. And um, so I'll put the stylet back in, I'll scan. If I got a hematoma, then I'll put some gel foam in, you know, watch it, scan it. But I'm not going back in for another biopsy, right? Okay. Um, checking their blood pressure, maybe their blood pressure shot up, right? And they're back in the 170s, 180s. They got to take care of that. So the reason why I take that one sample, put on a wet telfa, is then in that case, I'll cut that one good piece into three pieces and put it into three tubes. Uh, and that way you have a sample for each tube and it might be perfectly adequate. I mean, it should have five glomeruli. And I mean, it should, you know, whatever the count, the number count is, for some reason I thought of five, but- I think it's, and, I think it's more than five though. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, it's like a five in like a certain space. Oh, oh okay, okay. Like in a I micron or something. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. Okay. Like a one square micron or something. Um, that can't be right. It can't be in one micron. <laughs> right. Like I think a glomerulite. It's like we're really showing how much we know about glomerulite. Yeah, yeah. We will we will edit all this out. Yep, yep, yep. But um, it's uh, – so anyway, that's my little way because I, I hate that. I hate it when it's like, ah, fuck it. They're bleeding. I got to um, address this. I'm done with taking samples. I'm going to put this, you know. Uh, and so that's why I do that. The sample thing, you know, I've never had any issues with three. With three, I never, you know, sometimes a, a, a nephrologist will ask specifically for four, and then I'll mm -hmm. do four. But typically, they don't. There's one nephrologist in in particular who tends to ask for four. So that's uh, so. Let's talk about immediate Hold on, bleeding. Do you, do you have Do you have path on site to come and and count? No, no. Okay. I mean. I might be able to ask them, but it's going to be a whole process. And again, I'm trying to, you know, once I get their blood pressure under control and they're set up, I'm trying to speed things along. I don't want to be sitting there waiting for a freaking pathologist to show up. You Look, know? I'm I, I'm totally with you. And like, I, I get it. Like on their side, they're they're probably busy. And so like the last thing they want to do is come down and count glomerulus, something they're not right. used to doing or do it very commonly. And, you know, maybe according to their pathologist, maybe doesn't even know what they are looking at, which, you know, could be the case. So. Yeah, I but I I still like having path and I like to get because in actually going back to like with your point, like sometimes you take a biopsy and you have a gusher like you're talking about, like you remove the stylet and it's like kind of pumping blood out. Yeah, yeah, I will. Like, and so yeah. I know this is like counter to what exactly what you just said, which is all reasonable reasons to like stop. But a lot of times I'm like, all right, we already have a bleed. We might as well get it some good samples. And so like after like I have a pumper or what looks like it, I mean, you know, I'll still take whatever samples I need and then. Um, one of the tricks that I like to do is like, I, I don't always put the stylet all the way back in. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you yeah. put it halfway in and let that right. column fill up with blood. Yeah. I like that move. I, I, I really like that move. And, and yeah, it's like, uh, it's, a, it's it, you know, it's, it costs you nothing to do. Right. Right. Uh, right. And, and oftentimes when you do that, so for the audience, just to kind of take a step back. So we have immediate bleeding, right. And whether, whether you've gotten all your samples or not, you, you, you pull your needle out, you have bleeding. So, you know, you're going to do something. So put the needle back in, you know, a quarter to a halfway, as long as it stands, will sit in that stylet, you have it sit in there, or sorry, the stylet, as long as the stylet sits in that cannula, you just don't put it all the way in. That column, what Chris was just describing is that column fills up with some blood. And the time that you take to even get your gel foam set up or your make your little torpedo or what you're, whatever you're going to do on the back table, 
a lot of times you can you can then push that column of blood. It's probably clotted. You, you've given it enough time to clot, you know, three to five minutes or so, five, 10 minutes. And you push that back in. And then when you go to pull your stylet back out to put that torpedo in, sometimes there's no bleeding after that. And you're like, okay, we're done. And then you pull everything out. But sometimes it's still kind of oozing or, or it hasn't changed. And then um, I want to know more about your, mine's very simple. I rarely do gel foam slurry. I don't like shooting a bunch of liquid in there. Um, unless I, I have, a, unless it's a lot of bleeding or unless my torpedo, I just create little torpedoes and I stick them in with a stylet and push them down. And oftentimes that does the job, but if that's not doing the job or I can't get a, a torpedo to go through adequately, then I'll create a, a small volume, like one CC of gel foam slurry. Sometimes I'll mix it with a little bit of blood and I'll squirt that in, but I don't want I don't like shooting like three, five cc's into the renal parenchyma. I just feel like there's there's a lot of blood vessels there and there's a lot of air, you know, in that gel foam slurry. And I just don't want to like push push all that into like a renal vein. Well, now, I mean, now this makes me feel like a big hack because that's like exactly <laughs> what I do. Yeah, so so you're talking about taking your samples, then the stylet trick, and then I gel foam everybody. It's like three to five cc's of gel foam slurry. Um, <laughs> Well, and if you're if you're more peripheral, like if you're along the edge of the kidney, then you're not going to be. It's it's only going to yeah, go around it, right? It's right. not going to shoot into it. But yeah, sometimes you're buried kind of deep, and and that's where the bleed is. No. And I always, I that's why I put the torpedoes down there, and then I kind of slowly pull it pull it back and watch. And so, yeah, if you're right, if you have, look, I won't stop putting gel foam in if it continues to bleed, right? So sure. it it's just usually I get the results I want with just a couple torpedoes pushed in via the stylet. Yeah. So I guess I also like, I also don't put as much stock as in if I have blood or oozing coming back from the stylet, like, or, or from the, the introducer needle. Yeah. Um, like I don't consider that the same as like you have a post biopsy bleed that needs to be managed. Um, and so regardless of what I have, like coming out of the stylet, I like the stylet trick. And then I do a quick gel foam slurry. Oftentimes, as path is telling me whether or not I have adequate tissue, which they always say it's inadequate and they need one more core, some of which I'll cut a core in half and be like, oh, here's your, like, you know, like, or I'll have it, like, I'll take, I'll take two cores and then have one in the gun. And then they say, and then so they've looked at it and they're like, oh, we need one more. And I'm just like, cha-ching, here it is. It was sitting there. <laughs> I, I didn't let you see it. And then, yeah, so I do like a, a, a three to five cc gel foam slurry as I'm like pulling the introducer needle out. And then, you know, what I really want to do is like I line that track and then once it pops on that renal parenchyma, put a little like, you know, dump the rest of it out. And then as I'm removing the needle. And then the other thing that I did, I have picked up on, like when I was looking at like anything you could do to make these safer, some people will actually mix in thrombin with their mm. uh, gel foam or, or do a yeah. thrombin injection. I thought that was pretty slick. I, I haven't done that, but I might work that in because I mean, you can easily just throw a little thrombin into your gel foam slurry or you can do a thrombin injection. So it's something else to think about for hemostasis. Yeah, it's, I think especially if like you have a real pumper, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then, you know, I always image like, so I, I image in between each sample. So I'll, I'm watching, sometimes I'm watching like a small hematoma kind of form. And then uh, if I get blood black through the needle, I place the gel foam and then I will image after that. And at the very end, I know some people who don't, they're like, if the needle's out, then we're done and they're, blood pressure stable, they're not tacky. They're like, we're done. There's no reason to image again because 
you know, if they're going to develop a hematoma, it's going to happen, you know, you're, they're, they're going to feel it or they're going to get hypertensive. So, but what's, what's your take on that? I usually will scan just because I want to make sure I want that, again, I want that visual confirmation that everything looks stable. I'm not, I'm not as worried sending them back up. So I'll always do a post biopsy scan and that's actually just our practice for any biopsy that we take yeah. except yeah. bone marrows. Um, I'll do a right. post scan and, you know, I want to see the, all the kidneys and if there's a little hematoma forming. And, and I, but I do actually agree with your partners in that just because I see a hematoma, even if it's immediately afterwards, and even if it's like a nice size, like I'm a big believer when it comes to these things, like as far as like the post care, like I try not to get too bogged down in what I saw immediately after the procedure. Now, in, in the back of my mind, I think I use it to risk stratify, but I'm all about like treating the patient, not the pictures. So like if, if you have someone back in post who is like writhing in pain. Right. And, yeah, you know, like there's wrong. just, yeah, there's just a look to them in my experience. Like they're just, they cannot get comfortable. And, and like, and so like vital signs aside, like, right, right, vital signs aside, there's just a look to the patients who I end up bringing back to cath lab that I, I think need to be embolized. And, and then also like when you put the vitals on top of that, like, you know, if you're tachycardic and hypotensive, then it's a no brainer. But I try not to put too much stock in like what I saw immediately after the biopsy. Yeah. But I will definitely still get the post biopsy scan. Yeah, yeah, okay. And so, just standard post procedure care in order. You kind of touched a little bit about it. Like you keep them for three um, hours. Are you having them lay on that flank, uh, like with a you know rolled up towel behind them or anything like that to keep pressure on the kidney? Uh, I don't. But like I usually go in the back, and so I just have them lay supine. Back. Um, yeah, yeah, on their back. But um, yeah, I mean that might be a good idea to also put like a little towel underneath them to like have some added pressure you know because sometimes like you're you're biopsying within like kind of a crook of the back like where that's right. like not making ta- contact with the bed surface i haven't done that but that's a pretty good idea um yeah that's Does what i typically anything? do no it's just i just have the nurse yeah. to say hey roll up a towel put it along their flank right where my where, where right where the bandage is so they know and then they just kind of lay it, and then they'll support them with like a pillow on their other sure, side sure. So lay on that side and then yeah mine's typically three hours i i won't let them eat for another hour or two. And if they're pain-free and their vital signs are stable, then I'll let them eat um, at like one, maybe two hours, depending on how they, you know, how it went. And then I kind of feel like they're out of the woods and they can go ahead and eat. And, you know, but sometimes they, you know, they wake up and they have some tenderness and I will just take the ultrasound machine over to post-op or post, you know, uh, day surgery and I'll scan them real quick and make sure there's no hematoma. If there's a hematoma, I'll take them to CT. And if there's a big hematoma, then I'll take them to the lab. Um, it's uh, it's rare, but it can happen. And uh, you just got to be kind of mentally prepared for it, I think. Hold on, when you say rare, like, I mean, because I feel like this is like one of the complications. Like, you know, like you often give a, a patient, like I almost always say, pain, bleeding, infection. At some point during any procedure that I'll mention. And then I mention all the specific things. Yeah. I mean, like infection to me is rare, like in any of the biopsies and stuff we do. Like, I don't know if I've ever seen an infection. Um, that's not true. I'm, I'm sure I have, but I just can't think of it. But like bleeding, well, I feel like ble- this comes inter- up. Ble- bleeding itself is not rare. In- intervention on bleeding uh, is rare. I oh, really? So like you've rarely taken your patients back to the cath lab? I've rarely taken, yeah, knock on wood. I've rarely, t- I mean, the last time I had to do this was, and granted, I you know, I took some breaks from being in the hospital, but was literally like five years ago, 
yeah, probably, yeah, 2017, I remember I had a bleed that I had to actually embolize. So, but, you know, you just jinxed me. So the next renal biopsy that I get, I'll just expect to take to the lab. I would, I would love to like get some, I wish we could do an audience poll um, because this, and it may be like I'm taking mine to the cath lab too soon or something, but like I've taken like, you know, in the seven years I've been doing it, I don't know, maybe like one a year or back well, to the cath lab. You're probably, Chris, you're probably doing more than I am. Oh, we do I a mean, ton you're... of renal. Yeah, that, yeah, that's a good point. We do, we do a ton of renal biopsies. Yeah. Um, but okay. Th- that's a good well, point. You're full time. Um, practitioner i'm part-time practitioner so yeah you know by sheer volume you're okay st- st- statistically more likely to have i see I these see. Than, than i am but and and that being said yeah when i was doing it full-time and doing a lot of them that's when i was having these and so yeah one a year probably sounds probably about right yeah, yeah. okay that's still rare. I mean, one a year when, you know what I mean? Like how many renal biopsies do you do in a year? 50, a hundred, you know, 50 to a hundred probably. I feel like it's like 150. Um, I don't yeah. know. I have to get the numbers. And, so, and I don't, I don't know. I, w- I would actually, I wish I had my numbers with me because I, because it, I guess like there's also the thing that like it sticks with you. Like anytime you yeah, have totally. like something like that and it sticks with you because like, these are like the last patients you want to take back to the cath lab. They're usually sick. They usually have renal impairment. Yeah. Um, but that's yeah. why I hate them because that memory <laughs> sure. of th- sure. that trauma, like you, you see it in their face. They're scared. I know. I know. And you're like, this, you know, I, it's it's hard because you're kind of like, I told you this could be, this could happen, but they're scared and you're scared because maybe their blood pressure is tanking and you know they're in a lot of pain and you got to get that embolized very fast. And so that's really what sticks. I mean, I, rem- I remember the patient's family's faces, mm-hmm. the patient. Everything turned out great, but I remember that traumatic, that trauma of, uh, you know, just having to talk to them about, look, it's bleeding, it's bleeding fast. We got to take care of this now, you know? Sure. Yeah. That's the way to deal with it. I was going to say something else about, I wanted to go back real quick. Like it it was just uh, on the tip of my mind. Where, where do you take your samples from of the kidney? Lower pole. Lower pole. And then also cortex, right? As far as cortex you can be. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I also try and use like, a, you know, like a tangential approach where like, uh, this is for like the new trainees where when you're taking your sample, you don't want to be diving into the renal pelvis. Like you want to stay along right. the tangent of the exactly. cortex. So like you're getting tons of cortex. That's where all the glom- glomeruli are. Yeah. So if, if you're looking at like on the CT scan or it's like a C, like, you know, you know, and you, maybe your lower pole. So you're even like almost like a, it, it's, it's going to be con it's going to be convex. So you want to go either through that lower pole or along the cortex on that C, you know, and that's why I'm going like straight down is along the, along the waist of that C. And so, um, yeah, I, I'm the same way. All right. So going back to the complications. So, I mean, clearly like the way to manage it is you take your patient back to the cath lab, find the bleed and blast the bleed, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and that might be a whole other topic, uh, or another, you know, back table episode where we're talking about, post biopsy bleeds and it, it, it could be post biopsy bleeds that covers renal liver liver anything other else solid organ that we biopsy that bleeds afterwards like how do you how are you approaching those how are you watching them um you know how are you embolizing them those sorts of things and so i think that that could be another topic see li- liver to me is like something when i think of rare like i mean yeah I, I, I can't ever remember taking a patient to the cath lab for a liver biopsy whether it be targeted non-targeted but like renals, I, they have stuck with me. Um, the only thing I'll say is 
CO2 is your friend. Feel like you can use CO2 if you want and you, you can reduce your contrast load. And, you know, you don't have to image the, you know, you don't have to do a lot of imaging. Usually you do work, yeah. one squirt of the renal and then yeah. find the bleed and then get into it pretty quick. Um, yeah, so. you're right. You can usually get into the renal. I mean, you can get it in the renal usually unless you have like a severe stenosis, but pretty easily. And then, like yeah. you said, very small squirts get out. Mm-hmm. And then usually you know you know where your biopsy site is. Yeah, exactly. So you can even get segmental to begin with and do your injection. For me, it's actually so, one of the easiest things to embolize. Like, you know where your biopsy site is. You can, I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, every now and then something throws you like a curveball, but for the most part, it's one of the easier embos that we do. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, that's pretty much it. And the fo- patient follows up usually with their nephrologist for results. Um, yeah. They don't want to follow up with me with the results. <laughs> any, oh, any, well, one of the other, one of the other things, um, when do you restart? So you got a patient on dual antiplatelets and a DOAC, like when do you restart any coagulation? I usually wait at least uh, two, three days to get it for them to be kind of out of the woods um, from that biopsy, if possible. Now, a lot of times right, they're, of on, course. they're on Plavix or asking the cardiologist, you know, they have a stent or something, the cardiologist wants to get them, get them going again. So, but try to push for two to three days. I think that's, I think that's a very smart move. I will say like, you know, it's just not that this, should change everyone's practice, but I was getting a hard time from, I can't remember if it was one of my partners or from administration. I had a bleed that came back like three weeks after a biopsy and it was a patient who was on dual antiplatelets. And so I did the biopsy and they were fine for a long time. And then they came, they presented the ER like three weeks later with like flank pain. They did a CTA, pseudoaneurysm where I'd done the biopsy, but it, it had just been like asymptomatic. And then they went back on, I mean, I don't know, maybe if I had held it for three days that because we restarted uh, the day after, maybe that wouldn't have made any difference. Maybe it would have. I mean, you, you can't know the answer to that. But, yeah, you know, I'm ju- I just like that to me was very surprising that I could have someone pop back three weeks later after a renal biopsy. But of course you can. Well, the other Makes key sense. thing is uh, no strenuous activity for at least a week because I've had that come back where I forget they were like moving or something. It was something strenuous. And they came back with a bleed. Yeah, I want to say they were, or they were a soccer coach. There was one who was moving and there was one who was like a soccer coach. And um, yeah, and just young people, they were just wanting to get back to their active lifestyle and and had bleeds. One one didn't require intervention, but one did. So, all right, well, any new innovations on the renal biopsy front? I wouldn't say a new innovation, but there's a new way, or uh, no, it's not a new innovation, but um, have you done any transjugular liver biopsies? Uh, I've done transjugular liver, never a kidney. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I meant, yeah, transjugular kidney biopsies. Um, I haven't either, but one of my partners will occasionally, like if it's a patient who can't be uh, supine or I can't remember the other reasons, but that's the one that's come up a couple of times. It's like we can't have we can't have a patient who can tolerate the decubitus position. Like they're just yeah. so unstable. So he'll take them to cath lab, do it uh, a transjug and... You know, there's, I mean, it's described, well-described and something that's totally reasonable to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's always like a, like I haven't had, like I'll try and make the percutaneous method work because it's what my comfort level is. And, and not that I'm uncomfortable with transjugular liver biopsies, but I think it's something good to have in your back pocket for those patients where it's appropriate. Sure. All right. That's pretty much it, Chris. I, I mean, I would love a new innovation where we don't have to do kidney biopsies and basically it's, uh, you know, like 
bleeding risk or it just it just reducing the bleeding risk. If there was some way where there was a less traumatic way to get that sample uh, where there was no risk of bleeding, then renal biopsies would be a cakewalk, right? <laughs> sure, sure. If we could, yeah, well, if we fix that problem, then, yeah, yeah. So the the whole deal with these is like how to how to do them safely, efficiently, and I think this is like one of the times I would love to get like audience opinion because it's one of those procedures everyone does. I think everyone has like I mean even just like talking with you and me like clearly like we differ on like the gel foam yeah. slurry. There's people who use thrombin. I'd be interested in like hearing people's thoughts on it also, but. Yeah, it's a it's one of those it's one of those minimally invasive kind of like totally technically easy procedures that actually carries and at least in my opinion some significant risk that comes up in the day to day practice. Well, and I've seen and heard of docs who kind of rush through them, and I just mm-hmm. uh, makes me cringe because it's like you're just setting that patient up for a bleed and your partner up for an embolization later that day, and and so I just tell people to take your time on those. You know, similar to taking your time on on a lung, uh, there's no reason to rush through it. Make sure the blood pressure is under control, and um, you know, just don't like. I don't know. I feel like time. I did mention that you do you do want to move quickly so that you're not lollygagging, um, so that blood pressure doesn't shoot back up. But at the same time, just don't rush through it because I think that you can ruin your whole day. Right? It can sabotage your whole day if you get a blade. Yep. Agreed. So, all right, man. Well, thanks again for coming on and uh, uh, looking forward to the next basic. Uh, back to, back to back the to basics. basics. Yeah, yep. maybe uh, next one we can do dialysis catheters or thyroid sure. or one of my thyroid other FNAs. Thyroid FNAs. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Later, man. All right. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.